Welcome to Unboxing, Play and Profit for the Gaming Curious. I'm Lane Nooney. And I'm Joost van Brunen. And we're here digging deep on why games matter in today's economy. On the docket today, Friday, August 18th, back in the world of earnings, the Singaporean company C Limited returns some surprisingly low results. What does that bode for Southeast Asia more generally? And we finally find out why the Embracer deal went bad. Who was the mystery guest? Turns out, Saudi Arabia. All that and more with your two very tired co-hosts. But first, we've got some catching up to do. Today has been really long because somebody messed up their calendar, and now we're recording a podcast at 8 p.m. instead of 11 a.m. <laughs> like and normal I'm, people. I'm not happy about it. <laughs> I could tell. Okay, what's it going to take? Like, you want a few few beers? You want you to order you some pizza through Seamless? How can I? No, I. Your one form of punishment is that you have to write the anchor summary. But anyway, I'm right. sure this is incredibly interesting for the fans. Yost, why are you so why are you so busy? Also, this is another new background. This is some window I've never seen before in your life. Explain there's trees outside. You can't be in New York oh, City still. I told you my detox is going swimmingly. It is amazing. I've been looking at trees, staring out the window. I saw a bear. I've been driving like I'm an Uber. Like You saw a bear? Ma- yeah, you know, it's upstate, so they have a bunch of bears running around. They're very, every time you're like, why does that dog walk funny? And it's because they're like, front legs are longer or something. It's like, well, I, don't, I don't know the anatomy of any bears, but it seems like the front and hind legs are not the same length. And so they walk like they're sort of crazy. You know, it's like a monkey walking. Like, why does that dog walk like this? Oh, it's fuck a bear. And, and so it's every time it's like a surprise when you see them, you're always a little startled because it's not like a cat or a rat or a dog. It's, it's been amazing. So, you know, tomorrow we break up camp and descend back into Brooklyn. Oh, wow. This is your last night. I'm catching you on this your is, last night. This is how you're spending you know, it. I'm spending it with you and everybody out there. I need a beer right now. How is mm. it? Is that what you're drinking? That, that, no, I, is that I what that is that? Apple booze? juice? That suspicious-looking glass of yellow liquid. It's uh, you know on the mountain we drink our own urine. No, it's it's apple juice because I haven't been drinking any alcohol, so I feel incredibly like just jived. I'm like, let's go. You're like, I just wrote two thousand words. Let's go. Like I'll work till two. I don't give a shit. You know. No, I'm. I'm, It's really like this detox has been a miracle. I think I'm gonna stick with you know no alcohol and no bullshit for a while. It's great. How's it going with you, Lane? You seem like you've been working most of all from all of us, more than anyone. But to what end? Is this, are you prepping? Are you winding down? Are you hiring, firing? What's What's the latest? Wish I was firing. You know, I had to put everything off to get all my tenure materials out. And now I'm playing catch up from that backlog of stuff that I just ignored for several weeks. Uh, and now I'm digging myself out of that hole, responding to many overdue emails. And mm. I'm I'm fucking tired, man. I'm tired. 
I just want to be playing Baldur's Gate. Where's my summer? Instead, I'm planning fundraising launches for my journal. And I just got, I just picked up this commission to write a piece for Wired, you know? So it's like good stuff, good problems to have, but I'm tired, tired. But tell me about this commission for Wired. Is that, is it because of your book? It's like a commission on a little project that, that Wired's doing. They're, they're going to be putting together a little glossary of technical terms. And so mm -hmm. they're having people write like 2,000 word essays about these different, different technical terms. But I've teamed up with my buddy, Finn Brunton, who mm -hmm. is a professor out at UC Davis, because we are writing about the handle in mm -hmm. the history of computing. So the handle. That's pretty cool. Just think about it. What the what's the handle? Well, the handle, right? Handle is traditionally associated as a term for like a screen name or a username, right? Your nickname on uh, the okay. net, yeah, 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 right? It, it comes I'm, out of- I'm thinking physically. I mean, I also want a section of the essay talking about handles because I'm all about materiality and how we physically relate to computers. Uh, but also, you know, the handle is that history- you know, it doesn't come out of like ARPANET, you know, it wasn't early internets. It's a term that comes out of CB radio. So that was the phrase that CB radio enthusiasts would use. They'd say, what's your handle? Or which was like, what's your nickname? You know? So, you know, I've been, I've just been a, a kind of, you know, kind of a weird research space, reading a lot of 1970s CB radio manuals and guides and things like that. So, uh, yeah, but that should be pretty fun. That's but yeah, I can feel like summer's over, man. Like, like when you're going to get back to New York, it's been so temperate. It's actually a little, it's in the like mid seventies. It feels like fall is right around the corner. It's, it's <laughs> over. It's just, it's coming for us. The school year's coming for us. You know, I'm ready. I'm ready. I feel, you're ready. You, you know, know what I'm ready? Lucky and rested. All right, good. You know what I'm ready to do? I'm ready to get on to the news. Let's get this done. Let's get this. Let's get this done. We've been opening the past two weeks with discussions of earnings. And I know there's, you know, they happen four times a year. It's an endless pile of garbage to talk about. Garbage in, garbage out. Lots of companies we haven't discussed yet. Electronic Arts, Sony, Nintendo. But, you know, when I asked you what you wanted to talk about, is you think there's a little story buried in this company that maybe most of us haven't heard of. C-Limited. C-Limited, what can you tell us? Why is this the story for you? I appreciate that, that lead up here. Do you, was that okay? Well, that, that was clearly from someone who's excited. So, so here, there's two things Damn. on my end. I try to editorialize. This is just a, an editorial comment I keep to myself mostly, but it's, I like to read stuff that I can't find anywhere else. And so five years ago, 10 years ago, like getting financial data, around like publicly was incredibly scarce and, and hard to get. Nowadays, there's lots of newsletter writing. There's a lot of people out there, a lot of like bedroom analysts that are doing that, which is super helpful, right? Like, I mean, if you go on Twitter, there is like a whole bunch of people that are just sitting there in real time, listening to these earnings calls, just yammering on about these numbers. So you can really get the download really quickly elsewhere. There's lots of, you know, sort of, there's a huge cottage industry of people doing it. What, uh, so I don't, really want to just add to the noise. I try to kind of pick and choose a little bit what I think is interesting. And so secondly, so often do 
is that perspective focused on North America and Europe, and it kind of leaves out everything else. If you hear about Tencent and Nexon here, and, but what's interesting in this earnings cycle is really just this incredible drop by C Limited. So here's the background. C Limited is a Singapore-based tech giant. Uh, it's the company by, behind Garena, which you might know for Free Fire. It's its major uh, major title. It reported a 5% increase in top-line Q2 revenues from 2.9 to 3.1 billion, uh, which is good. That's a, a healthy, you know, uptick. Its games division, however, suffered, right? So the 6K filing it submitted showed revenues for digital entertainment had dropped from 900 million to 529, down 41% quarter over quarter. Um, and it's the games group that distributes both its own game, like Free Fire, and third-party titles like League of Legends, Heroes of New Earth, FIFA Online 3, etc., across Southeast Asia. So, socks to BC Limited right now. But the question is, like, is there more going on here, right? If this is incidental, is this uh, local to this company, local to this market, then maybe it's not such a big deal. So, one observation is that its player base is continuing to expand, but spending is in decline. So generally what that means is like, okay, great. We're managing to pull in more users, but those users on a per dollar basis are worth less. Hmm. Not worthless, but you know, they're just not as valuable. Um, and so they grew the active user base by 11%, and the total number of paying users went up 15% to 43 million people, which is fantastic, right? But you imagine having 43 million people paying you for anything. However, average bookings were 80 cents compared to 90 cents last quarter. So, so that's kind of where it's at, right? So the averages are declining. So you have a larger volume, lower value audience. So this is not a surprise. The C figured that this was coming. They had announced a salary freeze in December. A bunch of bonus cuts were you know, uh, announced to basically prepare for a tough year ahead. I think overall, that's kind of the sentiment that was shared by games companies. They knew that it was time to kind of buckle up and see how it, and write it out. And of course, the pandemic had done, you know, you have to kind of wonder, it's like these businesses, they tend to be very dependent on a single title or a few titles. And then you have this incredible moment during the pandemic where they just like go gangbusters. Right? So you see the firm growing to 3.2 billion in total bookings in 2020, up 80% year over year at the time largely because of free fire and it, uh, you know, and then you have this massive drop off. So it's share price dropped from a high of like 360 bucks in 2021 to about $41 after earnings uh, this week. So the suggestion is of course, that this is not the only company I've looked at some of the peers. And so you have things that like come to us, Crafton, NCSoft, NeoWiz, NetEase, NetMarble, and Nexon. Those are similar. They're, I picked those because most of those are uh, Korean. Uh, NetEase is, of course, uh, Chinese, but it also excludes the Japanese one, which it's just a slightly different DNA. And they have a broad, you know, like Japan, of course, has all the Capcoms and Konamis, but also Nintendo's and Sony's, which have a lot of arcade and hardware components to their business. Like these tend to be mostly mobile and digital natured companies. All of them on a share price basis have declined over the last two years. If you look January 22, it's re I mean, I guess it's almost two years. You know, all except NeoWiz are below their share price over the period. So they go up a little bit towards the mid, mid of 2022, but then they all sort of just drop off. And so it's weakening, right? Mm -hmm. 
And the problem is this, of course, like, you know, it's not just that games are not doing so well, but it's overall tough run for, you know, for the Southeast Asian market and particularly for, for, for countries like China, right? So it's so bad there that China has started officially, they officially stopped reporting the unemployment rates for, among young people because it's absolutely record-breaking, right? Just to interrupt you here for a second, you know, it's been remarkable to me that I feel like I haven't heard anything about what's going on in the Chinese market for like the past half year. Can you, can you shed something? Yeah. Like, can you shed some light on like what's happening? So the Chinese market, as I understand it, and you know, there's people smarter than me could really tell that story better. But the way I understand it is, is that, you know, look, they realize that they've been going up and suddenly now things aren't going so well. But China joined the global economy, of course, in the 80s and 90s, which led to a huge boon. Uh, unfortunately, you know, joining the global economy also means that now you got to show some numbers, right? And so I think a few, th so I think that on a macro level is one of the drivers here, where it's like, yeah, it doesn't really want to be exposed like that. It really doesn't really want to be, uh, you know, it doesn't really want to show its weakness in its economy. But, and so it's just, it just decides to stop reporting, which I think is a, it's a wild uh, move on their account, right? It's like, you, you really have to figure out like, okay, is that, is that what a global economy does? I don't know. At the same time, you know, it's very dependent on mobile spending. It's very dependent on, you know, these digital only interactive opportunities and ex experiences, sorry. And it ends up in my mind being a ex sorry, my headphones just dropped out. Just a second. Sorry. I'll start back with the um, second. when it comes so secondly the chinese economies of course you know like everything else is sort of having a harder time things cost more money and there's a you know a large conflict going on in the world so all of those things are not going so well and there's a large yeah. conflict going on in the world well it's you know there's the tactical component in of course in the ukraine but I think the thing that nobody's talking about is like, well, you know, so but it starts to create this division between these countries. You know, it goes a little bit beyond the scope of this podcast, but you, you can see this rift occurring. And I think that that's, you know, inevitably impacting the economy. What it, you know, f you know, far less terrible, of course, than that is the self-inflicted economic restrictions uh, China is imposing on its own economy. Um, especially when it comes to gaming, you know, you have the, the Cyberspace Administration of China, which recently published guidelines for the construction of mobile and internet youth modes, which basically is, you know, a proposal and it's, you know, building on basically a decade of minor protection policy. And they're trying to keep people safe, but in doing so, it's like, okay, users under age, eight years old have a limit of 40 minutes a day, you know, users under 18 should have a limit of two hours. And so, they're making it very difficult for the net eases and the ten cents to make money in that. So they have a very different approach towards you know consumer behavior, towards you know the larger economies as it works out for that, and the reliance that they have internationally, and of course you know their willingness to share and collaborate in that global economy. So those are some of the major drivers I see pushing everything down over there. Does that make sense with you? With what you see? I mean, 
I don't know if, do you follow China at all in that context? I try to follow China as much as I can. I feel like with the obliteration of Twitter, what little published English language news I was getting, I don't know where those people are anymore. And, and trying to figure out what my pipelines are for that outside of, of a mainstream Western games is, is tough. You know, I feel like what news I was getting has just kind of gone dark. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so strange, right? It's like you're promised this dream of like access to information regardless of circumstance. And that's absolutely not the case, <laughs> right? It's a, it, it, a lot of this information and the streams of information are totally regulated and, you know, obfuscated by organizations, corporations, and governments. You know, so it's, it's very, it's right. a little disappointing. I mean, the thing is, it's like it hits home, I think, or it's, you feel it in these weird moments. So Overwatch 2 launched on Steam, you know, and there's, and then all of a sudden, what you get is like a whole bunch of negative reviews. And then two thirds of those reviews apparently come from Chinese gamers. And you're like, w what's happening here? But there's just no openness of communication. There's just no, way of truly understanding this right and so there's a lot of speculation as to what's going on but it's like you know it's a there's an from you know and i'm purely talking about the games industry but you have this uh, you know this rift between blizzard and netease earlier in the year and and then of course overwatch sits in the middle of that and so content and these cultural industries they suffer because of these economic reasons and they're basically just a bunch of people not getting along uh, and not agreeing on any kind of contracts between them and it's just no communication to anyone about any of it. You're just kind of wondering what's going on. So I think that that is very harmful for players, for people that like to play these games. I think it's very harmful for people that work in those industries that don't get to benefit or don't get to decide any of that. And I'm not really sure what the problem is. Like, I get that you want to regulate and, you know, have control, especially China has been very adamant about controlling access to games among its citizens, but... Can we talk about this a little bit more? Like it seems so, so it's such a like shut up and do as I say kind of approach to everything, which I don't, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of that. I think, uh, you know, they could do a lot better job. So that's kind of my, you know, few pinpoint takes. So I think C limited is, you know, because of its drop, it's look at this incredible thing collapsing sort of right in front of us, you know, Barclays and Citigroup, they both downgraded stock price and their price targets by like 30 points. It's crazy. And I think it's indicative of a larger, you know, softening in that space uh, because of regulation, because of geopolitical conflict and because of the economy. And that makes, you know, I think C-Limited an interesting uh, company in the earnings this, this quarter. Let yeah, I did read an article about how uh, the president and CEO, Forrest Lee, lost one third of, you know, his personal value, which means he is only now worth like $2 billion instead of $3 billion. You know, you know. You know that you and I could make a million dollars a year for a hundred years. And that's how long it would take us to have a billion dollars, right? A million dollars for a hundred years? Is that math? No, that's math only, problem? you'd only have a hundred million dollars. We'd have to make, it's 10 lifetimes. 10? 10? How much would we have to make $10 million a year for 100 years? Well, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
There we go. This is why you're the analyst and I'm not. Uh, yeah, because yeah. I can do basic math. You can add a zero at the end two <laughs> ones multiplying. Yeah. Right? That's even more obscene. Ten million dollars a year for a hundred oh, years. Get fucked. Right. Billionaires shouldn't exist. Sorry. <laughs> it's just disgusting. I think we should do late podcasts from now on because I feel like I'm getting the true lane. I think the daytime lane is very, uh, you know, it's like buttoned up, buttoned up, and very like you're the Clark Kent, and then out comes Super Lane after eight p.m. Out comes the Joker, more likely, you know, chaotic Batman. You're getting that chaotic (laughs) evil side right now. (laughs) Fantastic. All right. So speaking of chaotic evil, (laughs) we speculated a few weeks ago that. Another company that has that suffered a huge drop in its share price, Embracer, uh, had been not, I don't know, left at the altar is a little strong, but it had been abandoned by some mystery firm and it was, uh, you know, short $2 billion as a result. Yeah, so here's the little archival treatment of me asking Yost who he think the potential mystery client was. This is from our June 5th episode earlier this spring. This deal could be with anybody, right? This deal could be with, is this a deal with an entertainment company? Is this a deal with another publisher? How is there no information? Mm-hmm. Do you have any suspicions? It's, it's, it's either Netflix or Amazon, one of those two. Like it's sort of, that's the dating that these that corporations do. And then they say, oh, actually, it worked out really well. We should get hitched. There you go. That's what we had on file. Netflix or Amazon. Couldn't have been more wrong. Well, that shuts me up. So since I don't know Jack about nothing, Lane, what's going on? What's going on is that on August 14th, which was at the beginning of the week, uh, Stephen Tatilio at Axios broke the story uh, with a scoop that the mystery partner from that $2 billion Embracer deal was the Saudi-funded Savvy Games Group. So you may recall that uh, this is basically the games arm of their public investment fund, a.k.a. their sovereign wealth fund, chaired by the crown prince. Right? This, is, this is basically a proxy for the Saudi government. Uh, Savvy Games Group was you know, one of their kind of investment arms for helping diversify the Saudi economy. Uh, they had invested a billion dollars last year in Embracer. Right. They bought a billion dollars of stock. They were Mm -hmm. supposed to be a two billion dollar partner in this deal that collapsed in the spring, uh, which, you know, is a funny way of paying yourself. Right. We're going to we're going to buy a billion dollars of stock and then we're going to fund two billion dollars worth of projects. But. What was your initial reaction? I I was a little surprised, but in retrospect, it makes sense, of course, you want so. I recall in an earlier conversation telling you, like, look, from what I can tell through my banker connections, that the people that run Savvy are exactly that. They're pretty clever. They're not, you know, it's not a giant bag of stupid money running around. I think it's a reflection on Embracer more so than on Savvy that they walked away. $2 billion is a lot. We just did the broken math on a single billion. So this is $2 billion. So that makes a huge impact for even for Embracer. But the Saudis, I don't think, are particularly, I mean, they have 30 billion sloshing around, so what do they care? I think if you're not willing to part with another 2 billion 
looking at Embracer and like, you know, and it doesn't go through last second because Embracer had already made its bed and like, you know, turned the sheets over and was ready to go lay in it. And then it doesn't happen. They must have seen something that's not right. And so it's an you incredible think, loss of value all around. That's so really what it is. You think that this is about savvy, not liking something about what Embracer's up to versus any kind of issues in the other direction. I I think Embracer, you know, was unable to convince Savvy that it has, you know, that its approach has merit, which is something we debated for a while now, you know, and I think it's a an incoherent creative strategy. They have too many irons in the fire, there's too many studios, it's all a little too much. And I just don't think that Savvy saw the value creation and they just walked away. But as a result, of course, now it's having a hard time because Embracer was really living off that money. Like, you know, when you start buying companies left and right all the time, it's very cool and exciting, but some, somewhere the money has to come from. And I think a bunch of your financiers walk away. That's a really tough, that's a really tough deal. So I expect Embracer to, to continue to fall apart as a result, uh, you know, but it's, I'm, you know, it puts the focal point now on, on SAB and the Saudi, you know, public investment fund. You know, we talked about how their money buys influence. Well, here you have it, right? I mean, Embracer stands with, with the Saudis' money. You know, they have a lot of pull suddenly in the games industry that they racked up in a very short amount of time. So, but one question I have is like, Savvy is also tied for second as the largest stockholder in Embracer, right? You know, there's no way this deal doesn't ultimately damage. So is this a case of not, of trying not to throw good money after bad? Is are they just not worried about what? Well, that's a really good. That's a good question, right? Like, the, is this just purely financial, or which is really what I think is going on with the Saudi Arabians spending so much money? Is you know they're effectively purchasing influence, right? We've seen this before with other uh, forms of entertainment. They must have felt that continuing to invest in Embracer was not going to give them the same level of influence that they were getting earlier. So that kind of leads me to the question that, you know, that we can move away from the economic and financial argument towards one that's more cultural in nature, right? What do you make of that? Like, how does that reframe this circumstance for you? Well, for sure. So this is an accusation that has been leveled at the Saudi Arabian government since, you know, since they hosted the World Cup. Right. So first it was sports washing, using their kind of enormous wealth to buy up teams, to host events, to try to position themselves as a center of culture. Right. And we're seeing them kind of do it again with games. They took a five percent stake in Nintendo, in Electronic Arts, Activision. They have their they have yeah. an investment in just about everything. What this does is it puts Saudi Arabia back in the news cycle for things that aren't, you know, the death of Jamal Khashoggi, right? Right? Like like that that you know that assassination of the Washington Post reporter in 2018, you know, that was the originary incident, right? It chilled the international climate towards Saudi Arabia. There was a tremendous kind of moving back, shutting down of engagement with the nation and Basically, particularly through sports and through games, the Saudis have found a lot of leverage uh, in terms of being able to insert themselves into these industries to buy up properties. And it creates 
Yeah, it it rewashes the news cycle, right? And and with every year, you just have another generation of people who don't even know why we wouldn't talk about Saudi Arabia as a center of the game industry. Is there any pretext here for you? What do you mean? Well, one question I got over the last two weeks from a journalist was like, is this a new thing? Has this never happened before? Which is a bait question, but you end up like, can you think of you know, a similar circumstance elsewhere previously? Where a a nation would be kind of investing in industries as much for the promotional benefits as for the financial ones? I can't off the top of my head. I think circumstances are pretty unique. I don't think you really could have had something like this earlier because I don't think the games industry had a big enough chunk of the kind of the entertainment pie, right? I think you don't see the same geopolitical economic dynamics, right? What other countries would would participate in something like this? Russia, you're not going to see it from there. You know, China is its whole as a whole own other thing too. Part of what also enables this is just the phenomenal depth of wealth that that you have in Saudi Arabia. Fascinating. You know, it's somewhat concerning for me to think that you know one group has such leverage right that you could just do that i mean we've seen similarly in like say soccer throughout europe uh, you know you'd have these russian oligarchs buying entire teams yeah it doesn't really sit well with the fans at the same time you could see the distinct logic of say like well it's a it's a it's an asset and these assets, they appreciate, they go up in value. And, you know, particularly when it comes to, of course, interactive entertainment, it targets a young audience. And so after a lot of oil money, let's say, has been spent to build up its the prestige around soccer, football, these large, you know, international tournaments and competitions, you, you start to then also see, I guess, an effort to push into a younger generation by way of esports and gaming more generally. Uh, you do that from the ground up. Hey, let's buy Activision. Let's buy some Nintendo. It's, you know, Savvy or whatever. PIF is the second largest foreign shareholder in Nintendo. I mean, this is wild if you think about it. But they just purchased himself a seat at all these tables. And suddenly there's all this, you know, you know, presence and it's gone very quickly. They've lost a bunch of money on it too, of course. But there is now this thing that you have to contend with. And unlike, the sports example, where a lot of people eventually got very vocal about it and they were kind of like, hey, you know, this is sort of absentee landlordism going on because they buy it, but they're never here. It's like we want someone from the community to run the club, et cetera, et cetera. You know, in gaming, you don't really have that so much. Why do you think that is? What is the difference there between, you know, why sports washing can sometimes be sort of effectively pushed back against, but games washing, is anyone even paying attention? I don't think people are. It's, you know, and the thing is, it's like, I want to be clear because recently someone gave me the comment that, you know, when you talk about this stuff, like your personal opinion shouldn't matter when you're sort of doing an assessment of the economics of the industry. Who cares what the person presented those numbers has to say about that personally or politically? Uh, but I think that's such a, a lazy ass statement. I don't know who said that to you, but that's yeah, my response. It, 
into internet people. And I take to heart the observation that, well, in fact, I do have an opinion. And I think that, you know, maybe in the same way that I mentioned about uh, like China earlier, not reporting like unemployment figures for younger people. It's like, if you want to be on the global stage and operate on the government, like, okay, great. There are some basic rules around transparency and like things that we do and don't do from just a human rights perspective, for instance, like you got to kind of reconcile some of those accounts. Like, is there, is it impossible to, is it, is every country free of history? Absolutely not. I come from the Netherlands, right? Like they all have baggage with regards to what they bring to this, whether they're recent entries to the UN or you know, whatever, longstanding members. And the same thing here. It's like you, you have to account for what has been going on in your backyard. At the same time, okay, so, and this is, I had a conversation with a Reuters journalist a few weeks ago. It's like, and I kind of arrived at this thing where, does it bother me? Yeah, you know, it, I don't think it's a unique moment in history. What worries me is that you, like mount this entire campaign, spend all this money. Okay, now make it count. Like do something. Like don't just sit there and own assets. Like there's, it feels sometimes like all those empty brownstones in Brooklyn owned by foreign investment and holding companies. Like don't do that. Like this is a culture industry. This is the thing that I enjoy. Like don't take over, don't take the wheel of the bus and then drive it into the ground. Like, come on, man, like lead, do something new, innovative, uplifting with it. And so, and that's the real challenge. Like, I know you got the money, but now do you have the stones to uh, to be a leader? Is that your personal MMA challenge to Mohammed bin Salman? Like, yeah, uh, make it count, like, brother. Like, what's going on? Pack up, my bro. Yeah, dude, let's go. Like, I mean, because, like, then what's the point? Then what's the point? If you spent $30 billion taking over, you know, whatever, 8 to 12% of a global gaming industry, fucking rock up like a person, like a boss. Like, what is this? So I feel like... That's what I fear, that you're going to get this absentee landlordism in gaming, and it's just going to deteriorate and kind of, you know, put a lot of very promising studios, very promising, very talented people, you know, back several years because, you know, well, whatever, we didn't care, it didn't work, the spreadsheet said no. Like, that's not enough for me. That's very, I find it very unsatisfying. So I hope that they will bring some grease. Get to work. Well, let me ask, you know, you're the guy who's who, you know, you got into studying the game industry because you were doing in comparative industry analysis. What what is it that makes games such a glowing object versus the other very tried and true entertainment industry? Why not do this with television or streaming or music or books, you know, or or gambling? Like, like why why are games such an interesting such a focal point for the diversification of the Saudi Arabian economy. I think it has, a, it's a combination of upward momentum. It's technology based. It's, you know, centers around a relatively young demographic. And it's, you know, it's the kind of thing that's much easier to displace than say film production studios or, you know, music with concerts and so on like you can you know arguably you could even make a claim around how gaming is still very much you know male focused and male produced and so that probably sits a little better than like you know can you imagine if they were to buy let's say whatever label runs Nicki Minaj and now we have Nicki Minaj in the Middle East performing like that's that sounds like a risk profile that is unacceptable 
for those people. So I think gaming is a, a safer cultural asset, perhaps, than the other ones. But it's, I think it has mostly to do with like the fact that it's technology-based, it appeals to a young audience, and, it's, and it has upward momentum. That's really it. You can, they've told me in the past, like they, you can just like, you can move all these people into the fucking desert, give them like air conditioned workspaces and they can just do what they do there instead. But that's not the part that we've seen yet, right? What we see now is a lot of, you know, buying pieces of investment in what we haven't seen is, you know, the homegrown game industry or mass relocation, that doesn't seem to be the moves that are being made here. I, is that coming? I suspect, or it seems so, like they are acquiring these assets to then build their local... Local uh, industry. It seems, from what I've from what I've done at the UAE, it seems very similar. You think so? Yeah, yeah. That, that there's an interest in developing a kind of indigenous, so to speak games economy okay it seemed you know like owning it outright vert and vertically i think that's the move always of course I, I imagine they'll set it up but you know belgium has a games industry too right that nobody heard of until two weeks ago when Baldur's gate 3 released now these things are invisible until they're not and i think that's you know so they, they should be able but like is there going to be a billion dollar franchise coming out of saudi arabia in the next five years because they bought all these assets i don't think so that's all the Saudi talk I got in me. That's fine by me. Yeah, you know, onward and upward to pawns and owns. What do you, you got? Know, what do I got? I got a pawn that the more I've thought about it, the more I feel bad that I'm making it a pawn. I don't know if it's a pawn. It's more just a like, I remain dubious. Maybe it falls into that category. Say uh, you, what? What is it? What's yeah, that uh, <laughs> you may you may have heard that uh, Netflix has very quietly released um, going into a beta for cloud gaming. Mm -hmm. So you know they are going to be providing access to two games on Netflix. The first one being Oxenfree. So mm -hmm. so that sort of you know, little indie darling. And that had been acquired by Netflix in 2021. Mm -hmm. uh, and then something called Mole Hughes Mining Adventure. Uh, no one seems to know anything about this game. The games will be able to be, if you're playing them on a TV, uh, you'll be able to download an app that works as a controller. You know, or if you're playing the, if you're watching Netflix on a laptop, you'll be able to, to use, you know, standard WASD command. But yeah, so I, you know, I've been very bearish on the Netflix to gaming industry pivot. Uh, it seems really, I guess, technically, this is quote unquote cloud gaming. Mm -hmm. I don't think this is a space that Netflix can compete in outside of games that move very slowly. I just don't really see the viability here. It sort of seems to me like, how do you build a collection of work that is this just another Apple arcade? Is this mm -hmm. just going to be another space, a delicate little garden that really nobody pays attention to? I don't know. I shouldn't be like down. It's not like. Yeah, why are you like pissing a, on Netflix? What's going on? I just want them to stop, you know, stop acting like you have any handle on this. You don't. I, I'm going to disagree with you. I think I think Netflix, like Mike Verdue and some of the people that work on this team, like I think that they're the real deal. They got it. I think that it's. A less awkward conversation for Netflix to do this than Amazon, for instance. 
Um, so, and you know, and the space needs competition. So they, if somebody's willing to take the mantle of the number four player in the space, fuck yeah, let's do it. You know, I, because like, I need that kind of competition. Like, look, don't hang ads in there, but if they're going to come up with a good, cheap, you know, reasonable solution, you know, people watch three hours a day of daytime television. I learned this week. So it's like, look, you know, if there is some kind of equivalent of that, where you just binge play a bunch of these like yeah kind of okay titles let's do that like there ha- it can't just be Baldur's Gate 456 coming it it has there has to be a middle ground of perhaps somewhat mediocre titles and i think they're the exceptional candidate to deliver that so i think that's a good thing for competition and demand but you don't like it do you, did you see the con- the controller i saw an image of it that was posted on polygon so mm. Does yeah. it, does, as a historian, does it remind you of anything? Oh, it's the um, it's the GameCube controller. There you go. Yeah. See, you're yeah. good for that stuff. I am good for that stuff. You know, I mean, come on. I got stuck with this pawn. I didn't really want to pawn this. Like, I'm intrigued, but I don't think it's going to go very far. You took one for the team? I did. Oh, I took a pawn for kind. the team. You know, I just, I love to yell about Netflix. Where was Lena Khan in this deal? You know, there we go. <laughs> Lena, we need you. The, I mean, the proof that the cloud gaming monopoly is not happening. Yeah. Right, I'm going to shut I, up. I, What's your own? My own. It's a, on a lighter note. I was, so we talked about the non-PC video game characters, the gang, ice cream so good, endlessness. Oh, yeah. The NPC, uh, the NPC influencers. Right, so now we have Nicki Minaj doing the same. It's, it's just everything I've ever wanted. It's just <laughs> Queen Barb's doing voiceovers, both for Call of Duty Warzone and Modern Warfare, and these like NPC characters. It's just, you know, this industry isn't nuts enough. Let's add this to it. So I think that's a wonderful, positive thing, and we should all celebrate and embrace this. I want to add a clip at the end. So See, Nicki, Nicki Minaj is doing what? She's doing the NPC character stuff, and she's doing voiceover for Call of Duty. What, who in Call of Duty is Nicki Minaj supposed to be? She's her own character. She's like, you're missing the whole thing. It's, she's got like long oh pink God. hair and like a, and a like a giant pink rifle. And she walks around in like, you know, high heels. With nothing, you just know, it's just... What the? Whoa, Snoop Dogg is here too? Jesus. (laughs) You know, this is one of the most like hardcore audiences with like all these grunting 12 year olds going nuts. Yeah, all these like, yeah, little white kids playing out their dream of of (laughs) fucking controlling Nicki Minaj's body. Okay. You don't wish to sort of imagine imagine you were playing Baldur's Gate and all of a sudden Nicki Minaj is like, just rebel rousing through your like little setup and whatever it's just like it's such a it's like why is she here it's, it's almost a question it's like but so there they are like all these I little mean, kids well it's just this, fantastic this is kind of a, you know let me not to spin this into its own content but is this sort of a fortnightification of the call of duty skins economy you know this is the kind of playful pop culture aware Right, like 
very like a little too on the nose sort of move that I expect from Fortnite. I'm surprised to see this as a demo for Call of Duty. But do you think there's do you think this is telling us something? That's that's kind of my question. That if this it's, can make uh, it into Warzone, then you know what's really going on here. It, it this has been going on for a while. This is not new. I think. In Call of large Duty? And among large publishers, they're just waking up to all this. Um, you know, the, the free-to-play generation allowed for this at a much earlier stage where they, you know, in both directions. So they would have, you know, rendered images of real people in the game, and then they would have holographic renderings of in-game characters in the real world at concerts, like the League of Legends like World Championship opening yeah. ceremony, for instance. So, so it runs both directions if you've been paying attention. So I think Call of Duty has been doing this for a while. If you, I think, I mean, I'm no expert, but Fortnite introduced this very colorful aesthetic, right? They do this with uh, Fortnite, they do this with Fall Guys and a bunch of this, and they have Rocket League and it's this sort of zippy, brightly colored, a lot of neon, a lot of sort of rainbow motifs. That became a consistent aesthetic throughout all of Epic's library, at least its main first party titles. And you see that bleeding into uh, all the titles as well. Call of Duty has been doing brightly colored weapons for several years now. And I think that that's kind of where it went. Like they stopped being so serious mm. and they really opened the door for broader, let's say, color palette. What that means, I think, is that they are starting to connect, you know, or I say basically opening up the magic circle, right? So, Oh, anyway, we're getting into game theory now. Okay. Well, you know, that's the thing. It's just like, here's up the mind. So this is, I mean, the reason I find this exciting because I've been thinking about it for a long time lately. People spend a lot of time in online games yeah. and they end up just socializing, hanging out. Like a lot of these games are very repetitive. If you play 10 minutes of a round in Call of Duty or Fortnite or whatever, 20 minutes in League of Legends, like it's the same thing over and over again. And so the variations on a theme, they emerge on the aesthetic layer, which is, you know, basically a form of expression for people in the same way that you build a whatever fire deck in Pokemon or an earth deck in Pokemon, right? So these forms of expression, they sit at that layer. They don't impact the game mechanics, but it's just contextually and between people, a set of signifiers. That's what this is about. I log into these games. I spend two hours every day. I hang out with my buddies and I got a pink machine gun because, you know, I'm hilarious, or that's how I want to express myself today. And that's just kind of like, so it takes a run on its own self, like its own seriousness. At the same time, it's also a form of expression for people. And that we're going to see much more of because, you know, these cosmetics, particularly around Asian companies, but that's a key aspect yep. of the economy and of, the, and of the experience in general. So Nicki Minaj being in there is like, of course, she's trying to reach a large audience. This is tens of millions of players. She'd be stupid not to. I, you know, I don't think that they paid her, but it, like, if I was a famous artist and I wanted to stay, you relevant, don't think they paid her? What? That I'm, you know, you could make a case that you know, having her come into the game gives relevance to the game, and having her be featured in the game gives her relevance to that audience. So it's a very mutually beneficial thing. I've seen examples of video game companies and music labels working together where you instantly see the plays on Spotify shoot up after there's some kind of collaboration. And so increasingly, we start to see these interactions like this. So Nicki Minaj is a big one. 
Snoop Dogg is an obvious one. Snoop Dogg was also on the board of FaZe Clan, for that matter. Like, he's been in yeah. there. They've all been trying to inch in their way into games. So this is, there's only going to be more of this, is what I'm saying. All right. All right. Well, I'm glad we turned that into a little third micro segment anyway. And we should have talked about that for the news. All right. So I guess that's it. We're just all giggles today. All I right. just I just can't. I'm just not here. You know, I'm not emotionally present. And because of your emotional absenteeism, I'm going to close out today. Thank you, Lane, for making such a long day, you know, end on such a high note. I'll see you on the next one. Good game and good night. It's good night and good game. Yeah, I just I say it my way, okay? That's the Dutch way. All right. <laughs> Cue the exit music. Ha, ha, ha.